From big musicals to straight plays, on Broadway and off, our next guests are no strangers to the stage. Hi, I'm Gordon Cox from Variety, and with us today to talk about their wide-ranging roles in theater are Danny Burstein, Malcolm Getz, Bill Pullman, and John Douglas Thompson. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Uh, can each of you recall a performance that you saw that inspired you to act? I saw the last performance of, of The Road to Mecca with two, well, three great performances, Kathy Bates, Athel Fugard, and this South African woman named Yvonne Bryceland, and then she died. It was unforgettable. I mean, that woman, Yvonne Bryceland, right? Does anybody remember this? I swear to God, I felt like I, it was my version of Lorette Taylor, and then she literally mm. died six months later. She was from Johannesburg. She came over. That was, that was Jennifer Holliday. In Dreamgirls. I'm trying to in think Dream of a guy. Girls. Yeah, yeah. That That's was actually what I was about to say. I was going to say Dreamgirls in general. Yeah. I mean, just that show. I was actually I sort of didn't even want to go see it. Somebody, a yeah. friend said, I've got a ticket and you've got to come see this. It's like, okay. Blown away. Yeah. Blown Ma away. Ian McKellen and uh, Amadeus. I'll never forget that. Mm. I'll shut up now. All right. John <laughs> Malkovich and uh, True West or Burn this, you know, yeah. did you ever see uh, Burn This or no, uh, True West? Yeah, no, no, that no, was no, real. The video of True West. It was amazing. amazing. Yeah, it was in the beginning of the 80s and the Steppenwolf came in and it was, uh, you know, felt like the molecules in the air had been changed, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. a sense of, and I, some of it, I think, uh, too, like with, um, I saw Jason Robards and uh, Colleen Dewhurst do Moon from the Misbegotten, right. and, you know, the sense of time, how they control yeah. the time, you know, it's just awesome. Uh, I think stuck in my mind. Mm -hmm. Can I jump in with that? Because that production you're talking about, I love that production because neither of them were working. Jose Quintero wasn't working. He had an affiliation with a the theater in Champaign, Illinois. It wasn't even Chicago. And he called Colleen Dewhurst and he said, I can't get arrested. And she said, me either. And he said, why don't we go do a play in Illinois? And he said, what do you want to do? And she said, Moon for the Misbegotten. And then he said, who do you want to do it with? And she said, Jason, but I'm sure he's working. They called him. He's like, I can't get arrested. <laughs> so they went to Illinois just for the creative venture of putting on a play they loved. It went to the Kennedy Center, came to Broadway. It was just, it's one of those great stories about they just did it for the sake of doing something they loved, and then it ended up being a success. Malcolm, that's amazing you <coughs> know that. Isn't that brilliant? brilliant. I mean, well, Colleen Dewhurst's autobiography, I, I was a big fan of hers, and she started her autobiography and then passed away far too young. And then Tom Viola, who runs Broadway Cares, who was her assistant, finished the book. So it's a great read because half of it is Colleen's stories about herself, and then Tom finished it off by having other people tell the same stories from a different POV. Uh, but that, that is in there because she specifically said she was 48 or 49 when the show came to Broadway and she won the Tony. And up until that point, she'd been a respected theater actress, but she'd never been in a play that had run for any time at all. So she said that she was almost 50 when she was finally in a hit show, and she said she was delighted, but she had to go home and put the kids to bed, or her head was on really straight about that. So that's why it stayed with me. It was just her real healthy attitude about, and also that the successes tend to be sometimes fewer than the, the, the not successes, <laughs> the creative endeavors, the attempts. Before I was an actor, uh, I had gone to see a play uh, Joe Turner's come and gone. It was actually a date, and the date never showed up. So I decided to go to the show by myself. It was at Yale Rep, mm -hmm. and it was Joe Turner's Come and Gone by August Wilson. And I remember sitting there watching that play and being transformed and transfixed and saying, you know, at the time I was a salesman. I was a computer salesman. Mm -hmm. I sold computers to the financial industry. Huh. And that was what I perceived as my career. 
that's what I was going to do. So I saw this play, and I was so moved. I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there. But that was the first play that kind of really inspired me. Prior to that, I'd seen, what was it, uh, oh, this play on Broadway where they kept changing the ending. Uh, Edwin Drew. Edwin Drew. Edwin Drew. Oh, yeah. I saw that as a school kid, and I was, you know, I was really fascinated just with Broadway. But that play, Joe Turner's Come and Go, and kind of really made me want to be an actor, even though at the time I wasn't an actor. How old were you when you did your first professional play? Like 28. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, right? No. <laughs> no this is great. <laughs> Lucky bro. When I it's went to school, actually. I was like the oldest. I went to Trinity Rep Conservatory oh, yeah. in Providence, Rhode Island, and I was the oldest. Me and another guy were the two oldest members of the class. And at right. that time, I didn't know that people started acting any earlier. Like mm -hmm. most of my uh, mm -hmm. fellow students in class had been acting from when they were teenagers. Yeah. So I never really had that concept in my head. So I really felt somewhat out of place, you know, being an older person, but I figured my life experience, at least up to that point, huh. would somehow aid me, you know, in whatever work we were doing, so, but yeah. yeah. The second, uh, when Angels in America opened, I saw the first part, I'd just come out of Yale Drama School, and one of the producers was a professor of ours at Yale, Ben Mordecai, and so we all saw the first part of Angels, and it was fantastic, but it was, you know, it was, well, the second play, Tony Kushner kept rewriting, and so one night was supposed to be a press night, and Tony said it wasn't ready, so they just called a bunch of Yale grads and said, go watch the second play for free. So about a hundred of, of us sat in the Walter Kerr and watched the second play, and that was one of the most meaningful nights of my life, because it was, it was like watching a rehearsal. Steven Spinella, every single member of that cast was at the top of their game, and that night, I remember feeling, I, you know, I'd read about Death of a Salesman, how people wouldn't leave the theater, and after that second part of Angels, People were sitting there crying, talking to each other, and I thought, this is a play about my time, my people, this ridiculous time in our lives, this, this, this incredible epidemic that's affected the last 20-some years. That was truly one of the most meaningful things I've ever seen. That actually, what John uh, touched on is, leads me to my next question for the rest of you. It, it sounds like you've told us the moment when you realized you wanted to be an actor. What about mm -hmm. for the rest of you? What, what sparked your, the decision? Everybody seems like now the idea of acting and I can be an actor, it's so uh, available for people and, uh, you know, it's, a, it's shocking. But for me, it was the farthest possibility. I just never, you know, ever thought about it. But I, I went to school for uh, building construction when I was, I was kind of dialing up careers, you know, how you do, like one week you're landscape architect, next week <laughs> English major, urban planning, you know. <laughs> going to a small school and I, and I went and this refrigeration student said well, you want to go to an audition and then I went to this audition and got cast in uh, um, the bald soprano uh, that okay. Ionesco thing mm -hmm. sure. so bizarre and I remember the director had us uh, while we were talking do a slow motion thing where we're falling <laughs> forward and falling forward and we keep falling forward while we're doing these you know husband and wife speech to each other and we're rolling on the floor and it, Fuck, this is what I want to do. <laughs> when I was 14, I, um, well, actually when I was 13, I auditioned for the High School of Performing Arts here in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, the year I auditioned, over 4,000 people uh, auditioned and 128 made it in. Wow. And I was just lucky enough to be one of those 128. Oh. And that sort of set my life in motion. Uh, I, you know, I was just, I'm just, I'm from the Bronx and, you know, my family moved to Queens when I was younger and uh, 
you don't think of yourself ever doing that, uh, but it, you don't think it's a possibility. I never mm. thought it was a possibility. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I was swept up into it, and mm. uh, I couldn't, uh, basically I was terrible at everything else. So, um, I just, you know, went in that direction and uh, got very lucky. My parents are uh, Londoners who came to New York in the 50s, and they had seen all the great shows, and then they took us to the shows. So when my father was hesitant to let me do it, I used to say it was his fault that he only had himself to blame because they took us to see all the great shows. And um, I was the kid. I was, you know, there's four kids in my family, and my brothers and sisters were like, yeah, whatever, let's go to the Carnegie Deli. And I was like, let's go see Sweeney Todd. I mean, my father <laughs> took me, I, I'm 45, so my father, and then I used to come on business trips with my dad. He would bring me just to take me to see plays. So I saw the original Sweeney Todd chorus line. I mean, I saw some amazing shows with my dad. And, um, but I think for me, because I was a classical pianist, and that's how I sort of came into the theater through the back door that way. But when I was 19, I got cast as Mozart in Amadeus. Mm -hmm. And so we did all the music live, and they gave me my equity card, and that was sort of the moment. When, but it, it was more also because I had done roles up until that point, but that was the first time I really connected. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I had no training. I didn't know what I was doing. But I remember night after night after night, there were moments when I felt completely just overcome by the music or the play. I, I still remember an entire speech from Amadeus, and that's been however many years ago, because I feel like that play is so beautifully written. Uh, one of my questions, uh, is is about the language in particular, something like you know Shakespeare or Mamet or anything. How does that influence your interpretation of a character? Mm. Particularly for, for me with Shakespeare, as actually in any play, because plays for me are a medium of, of language. It's not film, so for me it's all about the words. And anytime I encounter a play, in order to engage with it, I need to really fully understand the words. So whether it's Shakespeare or O'Neill, which is something I'm working on now, I still find it difficult initially to get inside of the language. So the majority of my work is based on getting inside the language. So Shakespeare is just as difficult for me as it is O'Neill right now at this point. But after you work with the language enough, there's a certain poetry that becomes, mm -hmm. uh, that's actually there on top of the words when you can start to do them. And then that's when I can feel like I'm releasing the character when I can tap that poetry. And it's the same in Shakespeare, I'm sure it's the same in Williams, and you know, uh, Miller, uh, August Wilson, there's a poetry to the words there, so that's what becomes most important for me. I, I, I know it's true of Danny as well, I'm not sure about you two, but like I've done 50% musicals and 50% non, and I've most, a lot of the non-musical work I've done has been Shakespeare, Moliere, it's been language plays. And I didn't really understand it at first, and when I first got out of school, Mark Lamos, who I, I'm very indebted to. He's a wonderful director, a great guy. He just took over Westport. Uh, he's going to be artistic director there. But Mark cast me in an opera when I got out, first got out of school, and then he cast me in The Merchant of Venice, and then he cast me in Edward II, and he was the first person who said he thought there was a correlation between singing and language plays. So like, and then this year I did a two-character musical, then I did a big language play, and the play I'm doing now with Helen Stenborg, who's Doug Hughes's, Bill's director's mother, is, oh my God, and, it, and it, was, it was so daunting to learn it, it took me like two weeks to realize that some of the sentences, it's like Virginia Woolf, like some of my sentences go on for, you know, so I've almost had to like think about where to breathe in the same way that I would in a song, because it's a very, very, very stylized. Please don't salt that before you even taste it. That is very annoying, this isn't a restaurant. Why do you always look at me like that? All right, so I didn't visit you for 30 years. I was busy. Here, have 
some salt, Abby! <laughs> but that's, I feel like that's why I do theater. You know, if I want to do real naturalism, then I'd rather do it on camera and get paid a lot more money <laughs> and not have to do it eight times a week. You know what I mean? I feel like that's the point of being on stage is, is I like things that are heightened and things that are slightly more theatrical. Bill, can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with uh, Mamet? With Mamet? Um, well, you know, I, I hadn't ever done any Mamet before this play. And, um, and, I, and I, I think I've, I've always felt that um, uh, I wasn't suited for it. <laughs> but I, um, because I, I don't know, I always saw the same actors doing it. And I've met, you know, I know Ed O'Neill, and they are all kind of part of a, a little little company and uh, so when this I read this play I thought uh, I you know I've I've taken it as a you know I, my response was that it was a very personal story and they aren't uh, just mouthpieces and uh, Doug Hughes who's directing it was very clear that he didn't want to see this as a thesis play which mm -hmm. has been kind of labeled as mm -hmm. so the challenge was to make to personalize it really beyond probably what many actors in most mammoth plays do because there's so much about rhythm and language and blah 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 blah, blah. so uh, it's been a, a, a very kind of curious experiment to see how much I can um, make it into a you know real organic thing that I feel like is an event that is happening live in front of people I think that is what I'm most Intrigued, but I don't know if I did a mammoth play next year. I'd do it the same way, but that's kind of the mandate that Doug set out, and Hello. I wanted to do with him and Julia. Hello. No, I can't talk now. Uh, I know I did. In a few. I. Uh, is he coming? Yes, I talked to him. All right, we'll meet you at the. No, because I'm with a student. It's going to be fun. Well, this is important, too. Two of you are in plays with just one other actor. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know about the two of you, but I suspect you've probably had similar experiences. What's mm -hmm. that like when it's uh, such a small cast and you, there's just one other person to rely on? Go to you and I've done three in a row this year. I did the story of my life briefly, very happily, yeah. with Will Chase. Mm -hmm. Then Peter Frechette and I did a very brief run of Sleuth. Mm -hmm. And now I'm working oh. with the great Helen Stenborg, Helen Stenborg, the great Helen Stenborg, in a play that She's on stage the entire time, but she has maybe six lines. And I have to say that it, it, I, I've learned over the course of the run that because I'll, I'll go up or I'll forget something, I actually have to go to the stage manager and I'll uh, ask her to correct the line because if I look at the script as it's laid out again, I panic in the way that I did when I was learning it because it, our script looks like a novel. And if I just look at the pages again, I literally think like, oh my God, I can't do this. So I just go to the stage manager and I'm like, what's that correct line? because learning it was a curious thing, but in actually doing it now, it doesn't feel that way because Helen is so fantastic and because the director was clever enough that, that it, he, he encouraged me to think of it as a dialogue even though she doesn't talk. And my character is so self-involved, he has moments where he even says things like, he, he indicates that she's talking to me because he just isn't paying attention to the fact that she's not talking. But somehow when we finish the play, it doesn't feel quite so much like I'm talking the entire time, it feels like it's just the two of us. 
But it's been a year of that. It's you wow. Know, yeah, it's but really I, I know. But I've been very <laughs> blessed to to share the stage with Will Chase, Peter Frischetto, and Helen yeah. Stenborg, all yeah. really good people. Yeah. I will say that now I think the universe is screaming at me to write a, a one-person show and just <laughs> <laughs> go out there and blab on my own and then hang up my tap shoes. <laughs> I remember reading somewhere that uh, when. Uh, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy were uh, rehearsing The Gin Game. Yeah. Uh, Mike Nichols, uh, they had te a terrible uh, time remembering their lines because it was just the two of them. And um, they didn't think they could do it. And they were getting to previews and mm -hmm. you know, screwing up lines and they felt terrible about it. And then Mike Nichols said, well, just put a crib sheet down on your, on your, on your yeah. table yeah. right yeah. in front of you. <laughs> and of course, as soon as they did that, they never looked down at it right, and they right, never right. needed it anymore. It was just that crutch, you know. This is easier for me than doing Sleuth with Peter because in Sleuth it was it's it's like um, it's such sparkling dialogue and it's all cues. So you're not just memorizing your lines; you're memorizing the other person's lines. So and we had a very abbreviated rehearsal period. So for the first couple of weeks of performances, Peter and I would be looking at each other. It was sort of like you're done. I'll talk now. <laughs> you know, it's, in this, yeah. if I go up, I just sort of find my way out of the woods. I just sort of, but not too much. But mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. how about you? Uh, uh, yeah. The, well, the, uh, you know, Julia is a star pupil, and uh, very, very savvy. And I, you know, it, uh, it's a challenge to make sure that all the words are there. You know, with Mamet, it's uh, you. I have the assistant stage manager has to ride my butt, and uh, so I ask for line notes at the end of each week. You know, because sometimes yeah. a word will float out. You know, right. I, I, you just have right. don't know why it was there for weeks and weeks, and then all of a sudden. And like this past week, I've had trouble with uh, about four that's. I don't use that that much, <laughs> but uh, you know, I I know that that is true. And he'll put two that's together, you know, and and then sometimes, and I'll I'll know that's true. I know that's you know, I'll, I'll suddenly it'll, and so because every time that there is a correction, it re-enters you right. into a real specificity. And Mamet is dazzlingly brilliant, I think. You know, I really have come to just recognize that there is no wrong turn he's made or any yeah. sense that, yeah. and every time that I think uh, I've gotten it and then there's a correction, I realize that that is so much more specific yeah. and better than what, the way if I drop one word yeah. out or something. Have yeah. you gone up recently, either of you? I have. Uh, yeah. Well, not so much as gone out, but like missed, as you were talking, like missed a word, and the words are so specific that it throw the rhythm off and the meaning off. And then what happens for me is then I start to think, oh, I missed that word. And now this next sentence that I have to say is not going to make sense mm -hmm. until I can. So I try to find a way to kind of shift it to make it make sense. But I think certainly with, with the stuff that we're dealing with in Emperor Jones, it's very specific what my character says. So I try the same thing, try to get line notes and make sure that I'm on target and I go over my lines at least twice a day before we actually do the performance because I'm so particular about getting every, and you know, the, the context John, or the dialogue. twice that a day. Written. Twice Damn a you. day. Oh. Because, because wow. for, for Emperor Jones, I'm on stage Brilliant. for 75 Brilliant. minutes all alone. And it's written in a particular oh. dialect. You're by yourself? Yeah. For 75 minutes? Well, essentially, but I mean, oh, there's, there's other characters. There's <laughs> other characters. There's other characters, but they're all playing the, the actual expressionistic elements of oh, the play. Wow. The forest and other characters actually I interact with, but they don't talk back to me. Huh. 
So it's me. It's kind of like a long-running monologue, oh, yeah. and it's written in a very specific dialect. Uh, and it took me a while to kind of understand. Yeah, that. I was going to ask about that because I know how Neil wrote those plays. Yeah, yeah. and this, and his stage directions are very, very specific yeah. as to how these things should be done. So I find like if I miss an apostrophe, if I miss you know a particular syllable of a word, it changes the meaning of the sentence. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, it's like music, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. It really is. Uh -huh. Can you imagine a violin player yes. missing that important missing that note? note. Yeah. Mm. You'd, want, you'd want to go yeah, back for it, you know. Back. But in live theater, right, we, you move forward. Of course. You know, yeah. and then you just try, try to make a mental note, okay, let me really go over that particular section in the script because I want to make sure I get that right. Mm. Have you gone up? Uh, not, like, not really, but uh, just like that, a word yeah. here or there. Yeah. And, you know, I've been working on the show for almost two years now, so on South Pacific. Is that and the longest so run you've done? The longest run I've done. Mm. Drowsy was a year and a half before that. Mm. But I do, I, you know, I, I listen, I read a script, and I fall in love with the words, yeah. and, uh, and then it becomes, I hear it as music. Yeah. You know, this, I know this is where, you know, yeah. it should really get, you know, big, and this is where it needs to be very soft. You just, you just feel it instinctively. And, um, and when you screw up that music, you know, yeah. on one particular night, I, I, you know, you take it hard, you know, yeah, especially, you, blame you know, yourself. You know yeah, and yeah. You, you feel like you didn't give the audience. The audience what they exactly. need to, yeah. It's because it you love it. such a gift when <laughs> there's a mistake. I, oh, of course. I, I yeah, think, right. you know, yes. really, it's right. not about hermetically sealing the whole thing. You right, know? right. Yeah, of course. Because that moment when I can see in Julia's eyes, she's looking at me like, where are you going yeah, now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of like it. I yeah. start to smile inside. Yeah. Like, okay, everything's different now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, nobody's kind of, because uh, you realize it can get so set. Yeah, yeah. To keep yeah. it jagged is hard. Yeah. You know, oh, to give yeah. yourself so That's what you do. You rehearse yeah. and you rehearse and you rehearse. Yeah. And as I do, I rehearse and get it as, as tight as I think I can or where I think it should go. And then, I sort of pray for accidents. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. you know. mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even if you, I, I mean, I rehearse it in the same way and get it as tight as I possibly can. And then I know that it can be free. It can kind of live. So right. it's all the line readings are always different mm -hmm. or they change. And I, I, in, in Emperor, I have the one scene with uh, Rick Fauché, a wonderful actor who plays Smithers. And every time we do the scene, there's something absolutely different. Mm -hmm and we can never quite figure it out, so we're always on our toes. So it really heightens the nature of what we're trying to play. That's what changed for me when I started to work on camera, because when I came out of school, I was a very consistent actor, perhaps probably too much so, to the point of where it was a little. And then I got on a television show for a number of years, and I got really used to just like, and then I came back to the theater, and for the first six months, the first year I was back in the theater, I was dying because I was just... So I went back to class and studied with an amazing teacher named Ron Van Loo, who now is mm -hmm. actually running Yale, uh, Yale Drama School. And Ron just, like, helped me sort of figure out how to respect the direction and the playwright and the other actor or actress and the architecture, that, but just to let it have that play from night mm -hmm. to night because mm -hmm. exactly so the audience can tell if it's actually living and breathing, yeah. you know? And, that's a, I remember my, my friend Michelle Pauk was in that great cabaret that Sam Mendes directed, and he said one day, Sam said to her, he said, Michelle, don't be afraid to take your day on stage with you, which sort of went oh, against everything great. I was taught as young. That's you can't great. say that to all actors. You know, <laughs> I direct, great. there are certain great. actors you couldn't Wonderful. say that to yeah. because they'd be yeah. all over the stage. But I feel like if you have a respectful, responsible actor, it was yeah. sort of the kind of thing I needed to hear, which was like, 
because I would have, it's funny because four days ago we had a performance and, and something really gelled in a way that it hadn't for me. And then the next day, of course, I was just like, I have to get there again. I have to get there yeah. again. And I just thought of Ron and Ron would be like, no, no, no. Because yeah. if you're trying to get there, you're going to just really, it's to just let it be something else. Just just let it be yeah. something else. That's mm. great. Because you're right. Mm. When you find something that's really wonderful one evening or one performance and you do want to get back mm -hmm. there. And it, it's that's such a great, I'm going to take that comment myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like bring your day on stage, it's okay. You know? mm -hmm. well, as long as you're responsible yeah. 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 on what you've done yeah. during the day. Yeah. But still, it's, it's, that's a great note. Yeah. It really is a wonderful note. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do it, Danny, that long, yeah. is, do, you, do you find that you have to uh, consciously kind of give your, trick your mind to, to wake up? Or is it get so patterned that it, you have to kind of keep? No, I, 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 I listen. I, that's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as hard yeah. as I can. Yeah. And I swear to God, I try to make it better and deeper mm -hmm. each time. Every time. Wow. I know that's, you know, After it gets. Two years, that's a great, But that's, great otherwise, you'd go, I would go crazy, mm -hmm. you know, just the repetition of it all. And I think some people do. You know, they just get lazy with it. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. It doesn't matter anymore. No, well, I really, you know, I do my I warm up. I, mm -hmm. you know, I get ready and I and I really think and prepare myself and take that moment before I walk on stage to uh, to uh, get myself set and um, and try and, and listen. That's it. Mm. More than more than anything. Mm. It's, it's humbling. Isn't it, it is humbling because you can really get out there and you can confront your own shtick. You know. Oh, if of course. You feel you've done something and and it's some come out of something that is facile and not uh, really right. connected uh, to the tense. Yeah, and, and, yeah. You know, and nobody's perfect. Everybody you know, has those nights where you, where you know, oh, I was I can't stand lazy. myself. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we, I had a, I had a, I do, I'm doing the Equity Fights Aid speech uh, after oh, the show, and yeah. Loretta Ablasayer, who plays a Bloody Mary in our show, she said, uh, during the speech tonight, could you let the audience know that uh, I don't always suck like I did tonight. <laughs> we all have those moments. And I said, believe me, yeah. me too. I had the yeah. same kind oh, of night. Yeah. You just try your, your best. Uh, yeah. yeah. And now we're in the world of cell phones and, you know, mm. all that stuff going on. Like, it's incredible. I, I have not gone there yet, but a week and a half ago, it was the closest I ever came. We're in a 99-seat theater. I mean, it was just, oh, and yeah. it kept going and it kept going. And at that moment, and I had, and I stopped. I just stopped talking for a moment because I thought they're going to turn it off. They're going to turn it off, and it kept going. And in that moment, if the audience could have just heard my thoughts, because I was like, okay, is this where I'm going to do it? And I'm going to be like, will you mm -hmm. please just turn that thing off? And somehow in that moment, I just thought, no, I'm just going to be quiet. So I basically just shut up until it stopped, and then I kept going. Mm -hmm. But it threw me. Mm -hmm. It threw me because yeah, okay. then I'd waited so long. I was like, it took yeah, me like two minutes to get back yeah. in, and I just those things just infuriate me. They really infuriate me. Mm -hmm. Or when I saw Journey's End, was that the great play that Boyd Gaines did? Oh, yeah. at the yeah. oh that beautiful yeah, production. Wonderful. I was sitting in the second row and there was a guy in the front row texting every five minutes and the set was this little self-contained set and it was such an intimate, beautifully acted play. And every time he started texting, his phone lit up and I could see the actors on stage. They they could sort of feel that a light was going on and we were all like, would you put that thing away? And the guy was basically, you know. Mm. I wish they'd just like take those things away from people at the door. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most useful note you've ever received from a director? <laughs> Don't suck. Keep it simple. <laughs> Keep it simple. simple. That's, good. That's, mm. that's always something that you, that you hear and it sounds so plain. 
that you never quite take it in, but it's, uh, I've had that note several times, and, and when I can actually take it on, then I feel a new aspect of the character, or at least I feel like I'm inside of the character and I can do the work. Um, but that's, yeah, that's mm. the note I've mm. gotten, you know. Slow down, <laughs> mm -hmm. going too fast. For me, they're along the lines of telling the story. You know, in some level, it, it's, it's not about me, and of course, you know, I always want it to be about me, not always. But that idea that I'm there to service the play, which does relieve me of this sort of responsibility and tends to take away my self-consciousness and my ego, that it's like, oh, right, it's the play, it's the audience, it's the other actor, it's the story. Four years ago, I went to Williamstown, and I worked with Roger Reeves, and I was definitely not, not loving acting. And um, I got, and he was directing us in a show, and about three hours into rehearsals, I was laughing my butt off. Roger was so, and then he looked at me, and he just, he just, I think Roger just, I think maybe Roger had, who knows, maybe he'd been there himself, but, and he looked at me one day and he said, remember when you were a kid and you just got to put on a costume and you got to go in front of an audience and you got to tell the story? And he's like, and he talked about just holding on to that and tending to that, so I teach now and I talk to the 18, 19, 20-year-olds who still have it in spades, but I say, you know, if down the road, and I call it the pilot light, and I talk about how you have to really tend and protect that pilot light, that, that basic joy in acting and performing, which for me it's been so <laughs> doused so many times. <laughs> and, and, and because I feel like even if you're doing O'Neill or the heaviest work, you can see people that there's still some joy in doing it. There's yeah. the, that sense of play, yeah. play. And that's really what I say to the students. I say, remember, you're in a play, a play, right. you know? And that's what I aspire to. I don't always get there, but just to be able to play like that. Mm. I always like to, at the end of the show, for people to come up to me and go, you were great, I really liked your character, <laughs> you know. And I, I had an, uh, a director, Jay Harnick, Sheldon Harnick's brother, uh, and he grabbed me during a, late in the rehearsal process of a show and he said, Danny, dare to be disliked. Mm -hmm. Rocked my world, I was like, oh, I can, yes, because I'd be serving the play, I'd be doing everything that was right. And it was just, it was not about me being, uh, you know, liked at the end of the show. It was, it was about the show and the, the piece and telling the story well, the correct way. And uh, I always sort of uh, hold on to that, you know, re trying to remember that. I did work with a Norwegian director, this guy Stein Vinge once, who was the, the artistic director at the time of the Norwegian National Theater, and he was doing Barabbas, you know, this Degelderode passion play. It's seldom done. Malcolm, of course, knows no, so much about theater yeah. history. No, but I did the music. Oh, my yes. <laughs> I did the music. With Danny. Oh, exactly. I, I wish I'd been in that production. Yeah, we did a reading at the York. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, it was, a, you know, it's this huge thing that used to be a passion play, medieval, you know, that, that he made into this thing. And uh, I was playing Barabbas, the thief, you know, and... Uh, and I, the first act is you're on a 40-foot chain that's pinned to the center and you're in a prison. And, you know, Barabbas is railing around and, and I would, you know, he'd have me doing such physical things like, like running straight at the audience and letting the chain stop me oh. and going down on the ground, you know, that kind of stuff, which we oh. had to work out so you didn't, I didn't break, you know, twist my foot off. But there was, a, and then I go and meet Jesus, who is uh, played by a woman who shaved her head. You know, it's kind of a great uh, opportunity to play around. But uh, he kept saying, you know, 
because it, it was European style, so you, you had this embrace of the audience, which I hadn't had a lot of experiences in that. You know, you spend a lot of time in American theater trying to be kinship sink and, you know, proscenium and everything. And, but that, it, it's quite a different science. Uh, you know, it's a different sense of being available, you know, that I had ever been involved in before. And it was incredibly, it, it ends up being uh, informative, but uh, he kept saying, Bill, Bill, more fleek. And I'd say, Stein, what's, what is fleek? Uh, uh, just more. And for the <laughs> longest time, I was trying to, uh, you were thinking of a note, you know, and I would, and then I, he said, so I said, uh, he said, one other time, he, he said, winked, he goes, more fleek, Bill. And I said, I think I know what that means. And he goes, what? And I, I said, I think it means you. You know, more you to the how you are mm -hmm. to them. Lead them to the audience. Right. Go faster than them. Challenge them. Set them back in their seats. Rule them. And don't care what they think. Kind of like what you were saying, mm -hmm. well, but, mm -hmm. but in Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> What's the least useful note? It's a hard no, thing. Hard. You can't. Yeah. Every yeah. actor has it geared that no note is bad. Yeah. Everything's useful. You just have to interpret it right. He doesn't mean what he's saying when he says that. Yeah. I have to turn it into it's something, something I know yeah. how to Positive, do. Because yeah. it's always results-oriented stuff. Feels wrong. You know. You say louder or faster. Or really drive it here. Right. You know that. <laughs> you know that those are commands that if you just did it literally, your pilot light would go out. You know. That's yeah. the moments where. Yeah. Uh, and I've had moments like that, uh, um, times where, you know, with we were doing uh, Edward Albee's Peter and Jerry, and this zoo story is a, you know, 50-year-old play, and Edward, you know, is a genius playwright, and, you know, he writes it towards the end of the play, a whole section in caps. And I don't like those like caps. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. like too much yeah. of the finger on you saying, yeah. do, yeah. do this, do it. Like yeah. big, yeah. big, big, big. And, and I, uh, I fought it and fought it. And I didn't feel it delivered us anywhere. And, um, uh, and yet it wasn't really tripping the end of the play. And uh, it was, we had a standoff of significant proportions where you know, it was an afternoon, Mr. Pullman, everyone here, Edward <laughs> Albee's here, now do Ooh. that section in caps. Wow. And I did it in caps, and then talk, 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 and then uh, Edward would like you to do it again, just to make sure you can do it again in caps. I did it again in caps, you know. and. Uh, and I'm really fighting it. Every part of me is uh, embarrassed, shamed that I've been just driven to this point where I have to just do what they want, you know, which every part of me wants to be a little rebel and sneak around or whatever. And I did it, you know, and I was going to have to do it that way and uh, that night. And they said, uh, take a break. Oh no! They, before they, they said, "Anybody you want?" Uh, well, good. Edward's happy. Everybody's happy. How do you feel? And then I said, "Come on, you're really asking me that. This is the theater. I think, I think it's bullshit. I 
think that it is a failure of us as artists to collaboratively come to something that is anything more than just a result, and you want the result. And uh, but I will do it. And you can. There's a pause. Take ten. Wow. And we came back and. Uh, and I thought Edward was going to kill me. You know, I mean, I had been, I really so worship him and so need his approval, that's <laughs> hideously, but I really, and uh, Pam uh, McKinnon, the director, said, uh, Edward has a cut. And, you know, Zoo Story has been cut for three decades. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't the section that I had to shout. It was a section before it. And suddenly, without that section, it all came that that heat that he was wanting in that section could just work. So, you know, it's like one of those things, like the worst note you got ended up being the best moment for everybody. We kind of, we were at such a logjam. I didn't think, I didn't think I could move. I felt so wronged and so, you know, uh, like I had, uh, was going to quit, <laughs> but it ended up being all right, as it turned out. How do you approach a role that has a long history and, in many cases, has been played quite famously by another actor? Is that kind of history a hindrance to you? I certainly respect all that's come before and honor it, um, but then try to do it in, in a way that's comfortable for me without thinking of the past performances. Um, like, for instance, in doing Emperor Jones, what I realized in my studying of the play that Henry Gilpin, who was the first actor to do the role back in, I guess, 1920, 1921, um, was amazing, you know? And the stuff that was written about his performance is legendary. So for me, I feel like if I could at least honor that spirit, then I'm fine and I can go on and do my work. Uh, so it doesn't really bother me. It just it kind of enhances what I'm trying to do, that there's some strong performance that came before it. So for me, I'm not really worried about moving forward with my performance because I, I feel I can kind of make it my own because others have done that prior to me. That's exactly mm -hmm. how I feel going went into uh, going into South Pacific. Everybody knows South Pacific, and everybody's seen South Pacific, and everybody has uh, played in high school, played Luther Billis or Nellie Forbush or Emile DeBeck, yeah. and you, you honor the past, uh, you're grateful for it, and you learn from it, but then, you know, it's, it's, it's your time to uh, make it fresh and new and breathe new life into it. Nothing acts like a day. For each of you, what was your first acting job in New York? <laughs> I, I replaced Off-Broadway in, in the Rothschilds at Circle in the Square. Uh, and the week that I started, the Tuesday I started, uh, notice was posted. <laughs> <laughs> and we closed that Sunday. Oh, yeah. oh God. That was my first wow. professional job in New York City, Off-Broadway. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> 
I was one of. I totally have you guys on this one. <laughs> I was one of six. I was one of six dancing boys with the Rockettes at Radio City, and I was also I was 21 and 150 pounds. And in addition to being one of the six dancing boys, I stood by for the character actor playing Santa Claus and Scrooge. Oh, man. truly, we did those old-fashioned auditions where you danced for six hours, and they made cuts, and they made cuts, and they got us down to the last cuts, and they looked at my resume, and I'd done classical theater, and they said, "We see you have legitimate acting experience." I said, "I do." They said, will you read a scene for us? And I was like, sure. And I picked up the copy, and I was like, ho, 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 go to this way. And they were like, will you read this one? And I was like, well, crash. And they were like, you, you are hired. <laughs> but that was the show. The woman who did my wigs, her name was Laura Blood, who built all of my Santa Claus and Scrooge wigs. I never went on for Charles Hall, who I think is still playing Santa Claus and Scrooge. Um, the woman who did my hair and my wigs, I spent so much time in her chair, it was like therapy. And I used to talk to her, and I'd be like, wow, I love kicking my legs with the girls. But like, I was like, you know, I, I did Romeo. I did all this stuff. And so one day, Laura was teaching at Juilliard. And she said, why don't you go back to school, go to Yale or Juilliard? And I was like, they are not going to take me. I was, you know, I just, like, I, I was like, I'm not one of those kids. My family doesn't have any money. I'm from Gainesville, Florida. And so she convinced me to audition for the schools. Nobody helped me. I just went out and did my auditions, and I got in. So, and then when I went to school, I thought, if they found out what I was doing, they were going to kick me out of the school. But... So I was one of the <laughs> dancing all-American kids at Radio City. You got us all. My story oh, is not going to compete with that, but I will tell you anyway. <laughs> in my second year of drama school, it was only two years, two-year program, Trinity Rep, um, I would always read like backstage, and there were these cattle call auditions. And there was an audition for Manhattan Theater Club. Uh, just for a general audition, essentially. And I came into the city. I caught the bus from Providence, Rhode Island, and got to New York. But I got there late. And as I got to the Actors' Equity building and I was on the elevator, the people from Manhattan Theater Club, which is actually Julie Tucker, casting director, was actually on her way out. I said, I'm so sorry I'm late. I caught the bus. I'm in school. I really want to do this audition. Could you please, please, please see me? She said, Okay, so they took me back to the room. I did a two-minute monologue, and she said, good. When you get to the city, as a professional actress, send me your information. Make sure you do that. So, going forward a year, I get to the city, I send her my information, they call me in, and I audition with Julie Tucker and Nancy Piccioni for this A.R. Gurney play called Overtime, which was done there several years ago. Uh, I didn't get in the play, but they liked me so much that I got the understudy right. role. And I almost went on three times, right. but it, it just never quite happened. So that was actually my first professional job, and then after that, desert. <laughs> after that, like, desert for a while, and then I worked out of New York, then finally came back. Mm. Now, you're thinking of, like, paying job, right? Yeah. <coughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did some shameless things <laughs> that I didn't get paid for. That could us. maybe challenge, but no paying. That's let's stick. No, I did understudy uh, Life and Limb, Keith Redeen play at Playwrights Horizons, mm. and Laura Hughes and I were understudies oh, wow. together. Doug's I mean. sister, Laura, wow. and uh, you know they, they had. Uh, 
we had it was so nice to be paid as an actor yeah. and uh, yeah. you know it's the same feeling of being I mean just yeah, sitting exactly. here with you guys who I haven't met until today and yet there suddenly is a, some amazing affinity and mm -hmm. a great curiosity about mm -hmm. each other yeah. and I felt like I had entered that society yes. you know yeah. when you get your first job and uh, yeah. they uh, and then they, they actually, uh, Tom's babe, uh, oh, Tom who was a yeah. very, very exquisite very guy, yeah. um, playwright and director, he directed that. And, uh, and Robert Joy was playing the lead, and I was understudying him. And uh, they were, there was talk, and Andre Gregory, you know, was running it. And, the, and uh, uh, they said, uh, you know, I think he might go on, because Robert has something in Canada. He's Canadian, I think, and he had something to do. And you could go on for a week, and then it became, no, we're actually going to close the show, so you're going to go on for one day only. And, uh, and I thought, oh, I'm ready, I'm ready for whatever. And then we'd have one rehearsal with the director. And this is not against Tom's babe or the cast, but no one wanted to do that rehearsal. You know, it was their last day, and they had to do it with me, who they really hadn't talked to that much, even though I felt like I was brothers and sisters. <laughs> right and we did the run-through, and uh, and I had been, you know, it's a fierce thing with one-armed men with one arm. You have <laughs> like five costume changes, military uniforms with one arm, you know, and you have two dressers, and you're doing all that, and you're on stage the whole time. And it's this like, guy who comes back from the war and, um, uh, you know, um, uh, and then uh, gets into selling body parts, uh, Keith Redeen style, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, they did the run thing, and Thomas Babe said, everybody get together. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you're doing, but you're not doing the play I directed. We don't have any time to fix it, so good luck. Wow. Wow. It was... You know, I think caught him oh. at a bad day. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, like, well, I really had. Yeah. Since I became friends with him and I had been, but uh, and I and I and uh, Elizabeth Perkins was in it. She played opposite me, and she was. She didn't even look at me. You know, going out, she was like, "This is what is going on. Yeah. This is terrible." But I knew that I had something. Hmm. I knew that this play needed one last ingredient. I'd been watching it, and I was goddamned if I wasn't going to try it, mm -hmm. you know. And it wasn't quite exactly, I guess, what he directed, but I, it wasn't like I was doing different blocking. It wasn't like it. It was just an internal thing. And it, of course, I'm saying it because it wasn't a disaster. It was a huge <laughs> feeling to be at the end of that play, and Betsy Perkins came and just like, hugged me yeah. and just you know it's that feeling like god we just came through this hell yeah. hot hot fire and everything was yeah. and it just did kind of go there but i think i got eighty dollars that yeah for that show <laughs> you know i yeah. get paid eighty dollars for going on do you as actors do research uh for a role before you do it and what kind do you do there was a time where i didn't I just kind of looked at something and said, okay, I can see myself doing it and I'll go ahead. Um, I'd say in the last three, four years, I, I've taken on doing quite a bit of research, certainly figuring more out about the playwright, about the language that's in the play, other plays, other productions of the play that have been done. And it just kind of gives me a good foundation from where I can start. So I, I would say certainly now I, I tend to do quite a bit and it helps me feel confident 
uh, as I approach things, because before when I didn't do the research, I guess I just wasn't even aware that I'd get on stage and I had no idea what I was doing or I couldn't put it in a context. So now the research for me gives me a great deal of context for what I'm about to do. So for me, a lot now. Can I ask you about the dialect in yeah, there? Yeah. I mean, did and that ever scare the crap out no, of you? No, you know, the funniest thing is I, I this is this is a perfect question because when I looked at the play, when Kieran O'Reilly, who's the uh, producing uh, director and the director of Emperor Jones, had approached me about the play, I, it took me four months to say yes, essentially. Because yeah. I'd heard of the play, but I'd never seen it. I'd only seen the movie version with Paul Roberson, which in in essence, the last 30 minutes of that movie is the O'Neill play. Everything up to it is all backstory that they created for the movie. And I'd never seen the movie in its entirety, so I had no knowledge of the play. Most plays people ask me to do, I have some sort of an idea. I've seen a production, I knew a friend in a production, someone I could call to get some information. Nothing on this. So I look at the script and I'm reading the dialect and I can't make it out. I can't make out the syntax, nor can I make out the thought structure or the scheme. But it took me, it's just like Shakespeare in a sense. To me, sometimes I'm reading Shakespeare. I know their words, but I don't quite fully understand them. And I don't understand the thought structure of the character. So it took me about two, two and a half readings. Then I understood the thought structure. And I said, wow, this guy, Emperor Jones, is charismatic. He's powerful. He's intelligent. He's entrepreneurial. He's uh, everything. He's this great character. Certainly someone who's been uh, dispossessed and he wants to get possession of something any way that he can. So for me, I had to really research the dialect and figure out where it was from, get it in my mouth, like taste those words, and then I realized, wow, what O'Neill's written here, this is actually poetry. And a lot of people had looked at the dialect as being some sort of negative reflection on the character and O'Neill saying something negative about African Americans. But I never found that. I found kind of a release into it, like, wow, this is a fabulous character. Would amazing things to say, mm. you know, about mm -hmm. everything. So uh, that was part, and had I not have done the research, because then I found out the things that influenced O'Neill, like expressionism, which was happening in Eastern Europe with, with Ibsen and, and Chekhov and Strindberg, uh, what he knew about Haitian rulers, uh, political re rulers that were coming up and going down. And actually the story was kind of based on this guy, John Guillaume Sams, who said, the only way I could be killed, he was a political ruler in Haiti, the only way I could be killed is with a silver bullet. So the play was originally going to be called The Silver Bullet, because that's what Emperor Jones keeps talking about, a silver bullet. But there's all this research and the stuff that he wanted to do. He was very much into Jung, you know, and the psychology of the unconscious, the psychology of the unconscious mind. So when you start doing that kind of research, it gives a whole new meaning to the text. And say, God, this guy was really on to something, you know, because this production, not this production, but there have been few productions of this play yeah. because of the negativity surrounding it, which I found not to be true or current. Mm -hmm. So it was through the research that I was able to overcome that and really move forward with the play. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Do you, each of you or any of you have an acting secret and would you be willing to share it uh, with us? For me, my secret, if it's anything, is just I just want to make a contribution and leave it for other people to determine whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. So when I think like that, I can release myself from the work. I don't have to allow my ego to determine where it is I want to go. I'm just simply making a contribution to all that's been out there.
I don't, I don't know that I have an acting secret, but being in here today, and I just have been thinking a lot about the theater, and I've been thinking a lot about the New York theater and what it means to work in this community. Hearing Bill talk, I thought it's true. Like I, when I was, I was on a series for years. I had a house in L.A., and then everybody was like, "Well, why did you go back to New York?" And I said, "Well, I just didn't think twice about it. I'm from the theater, and I think you know, if you're from the theater, that's that's my that's my foundation. So." These are my people. This specific community, you know, you, I have names like Nancy Pacelli. I mean, really yeah, wonderful yeah. people who've nurtured me as well. And it is a relatively small community too. And and not to get like I don't know whatever this is, but like I've just I've been thinking a lot about being here in this town, doing theater in this town at this time. You know, specifically, I'm glad there's somebody else from Off Broadway here as well because you know the situation of Off Broadway has changed. So we did a, a show Off Broadway. 12 years ago, 14 years ago, and I feel like the, the, that there was an off-Broadway musical. I don't even know if there are off-Broadway musicals now. I just feel like the economy, you know, is, is uh, and the, the, the cost of the theater. I can't afford to go to Broadway. I really can't go. So to stay in this town and to be a part of this wonderful creative community, I just feel like it's an, an astonishing time to see what's going on business-wise. Mm -hmm. What's running, what's not, what's... It's, it's, it feels like a very, very uh, ground-shifting time to yeah. be a part of this community. Like the business model, I think, has changed Absolutely. for what works on Broadway. And, and I think off-Broadway, that model still, in my sense, and still seems the same, but the Broadway stuff, that business model has yeah. changed. But even off-Broadway, I think, is having a harder time of it. I mean, you're with, you know, a, 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 a theater, an actual not-for-profit theater. Like, we're doing a commercial off-Broadway run, and I don't really know if the audiences know that there are off-Broadway shows anymore unless, you know, it's yeah. just been a really interesting That's time right. to be here. Mm. Right. Do any of you have routines that you do on show day? Oh, to scuttle from the battle and to settle on an atle, far from brutal mortal neath a wattle portal, to keep little tiny cattle and to whittle down one's chattels wow. and not prattle on a settle round the kettle. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bill should have the last one. <laughs> <to me. laughs> Isn't that good? I had totally forgotten this thing, and Doug Hughes was saying, Pullman, come on, this, you, you gotta go lightning speed and you gotta just you know you can't just have you know in that thing right at the top you know because I you can warm into that mammoth yeah, yeah. stuff but unless you're really and I had totally forgotten this thing that I had learned I'd gone to England and studied in the 70s you know and this guy uh, um, Robert Palmer who was a speech guy at RADA taught me that and uh, and I had totally forgotten it and I remember sitting there after Doug had said that and I said what what do I, how do I do, oh, to shuttle from the battle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you do anything, Dan? Oh, sure, just, you, you know, the usual warm-ups, uh, vocal warm-up, and uh, it's a very physical show for me, yeah. so I, I have one of those foam rollers that, you know, I, I have to, because uh, I'm old. <laughs> uh, foam roller is they're, so key. They're my fantastic. wife got me one of those, and I do that. That's a great way to open up this thing. Oh, yeah. You know, that Pilates. Right, or That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever fantastic. tried it? I do. You know, I have the big ball. Ah. <laughs> I don't know if. I, I think I'm getting the same thing as I do it on my back and I do right. it forward. I'm a little bit higher off the ground, I guess. I think those body rollers are what? They're about like in circumference. They're what? Like they're about that size. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, yeah. they're great. Maybe truly I saved invest my in life. that. Well, I can bring know. that to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the ball is too big to get on the subway. 
I smoke a cigarette. No. <laughs> uh, I don't, actually. Oh, that's no, I don't yeah, smoke a cigarette. No, 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 no. Sometimes I do a variation of the, the voice warm-up. I was taught, like, it's sort of a link letter type thing. But it really depends on the day, how I'm feeling, you know. It's, I, I try to get present. That's this. Somebody said to me that, that uh, 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 great movie actor, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Somebody yes. said that Gene Hackman sits on a set and he just relaxes his body and he tries to see if he's holding any tension. And I do some variation of that. I basically just try to get in my body, get out of my crazy head that's just talking a lot of nonsense, and just get present and then stay open and see what happens, you know, go out. Woohoo, here we go again. <laughs> it's live, folks. Exactly. <laughs> All right, and I think our time is up. Uh, thank you for joining for us. us. Of course, Gordon. And thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Gordon Cox, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. I'm Ted Chapin, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. The Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. Best known for creating the Tony Awards, we stand for excellence, but we also support education in the theater, and our work reaches beyond Broadway in New York. The Working in the Theater television programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are unequaled forums for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth radio interviews were created in conjunction with XM Satellite Radio and can be heard on our website. Our annual theater company grants support New York not-for-profits and since they began have distributed nearly $3 million. We are also pleased to be the home of the Jonathan Larson grants, which support emerging composers and lyricists. For people who are starting their careers, we have a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country called Springboard NYC. And our theater intern group provides a forum for young people who are starting their careers to build a professional network. All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free on demand from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for your interest in the Wing, and thanks for watching.